Welcome to Access Utah. It's a special member drive edition of the program again today. And today we'll shine a spotlight on the Cash Refugee and Immigrant Connection, or CRIC. That's an organization in northern Utah devoted to helping refugees and immigrants. We'll review the history of refugees in northern Utah, as well as current needs. And we'll talk about doing good in challenging times. Our guests include Nelda Alt-Dislin, who is a founder of uh, Crick. Uh, and uh, Nelda Alt-Dislin, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate you uh, coming in. Uh, Randy Williams is president of the Board of Trustees currently for Crick. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having us. And uh, Danny Buse is the new executive director of the organization. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thank you, Tom. We're very grateful to be here with you today. And uh, it was still in COVID times, and so to set the scene for our listeners, my three guests are in Studio A, where I normally am. But in order that they uh, can separate by six feet uh, from each other, uh, they're there. And I'm two studios over, but I'm looking at uh, them through the glass. So, yes, we're waving to each other at this point. Um, let me start, start with Nelda Aldisl and get a little bit background on you. Um, raised in Logan? That's right, yeah. Yeah, I grew up just down uh, a few blocks down Old Main and kind of grew up in the shadow of Old Main. Um, and I went to Logan Schools, graduated from Utah State with a degree in American Studies, and then went to Western Kentucky University to study folklore. And I understand that's where you uh, got an interest in uh, working with uh, with refugees. Bowling Green International Center, tell me about that. That's right, yeah. I um, For an independent study um, in my folklore program, I volunteered at the Bowling Green International Center um, and to, to pilot um, an education curriculum that was based on folklore. Um, so I had the students, they were all adults, um, learn English by talking about their traditions from their homes and, and um, the things that they, were, they, had, they wondered about now that they lived in Kentucky. Uh, so tell me a little bit about that refugee community. What, uh, where were they from? Yeah, um, well, I was there in the mid-2000s. Um, so many of the new people who were, who were arriving there were um, from Burma originally, Burundi. They had many, a lot of Burundians. Um, but the center had started because um, in the 90s, when the um, many Bosnians were leaving um, that area of the world, were resettled in Kentucky, and that was the beginning of that international center. So you, you were uh, collecting stories and such? Is that what you were doing? Um, kind of. I was. Um, we were talking about um, traditions, and so I'd say, well, okay, here in Kentucky, um, if a little kid is going to celebrate a birthday, here's what they're going to do with a cake and those kinds of things. Tell me what you um, how you celebrate birthdays. And then that's where I learned things like there are people in the world who don't mark birthdays on a calendar. Like, you know, it's it's maybe everyone celebrates it at a you know Chinese New Year or something like that. Um, so it was mostly talking about their background, um, not so much me collecting. Yeah. Anybody stand out from that time? Did, did anybody you did, could tell me about? Yes. And I, I look back on that time and wish I had been more educated about about a lot of things going on in the world. Um, and I met these um, a brother and a sister from from Burma. Um, they were Burmese Muslim, and uh, they they were probably seventeen and fifteen years old. But their their paperwork had been um, just miswritten when they were resettled as refugees with their family, and so it looked like they were much older on paper than they actually were. So the public schools wouldn't allow them to come to school, um, and that's all they wanted was just to be with other teenagers, learn English. Um, and so while they were waiting for all that to get sorted out, they were coming to these adult English classes, and. Um, and they were they were just a delightful crew. You know, they the two of them didn't have a lot of English between them, but but they were you know that brother sister teenager sort of thing. And I was like, I I don't know your story, but because you can't tell me yet, but I wish I did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's turn to Randy Williams. Um, 
who is uh, currently, I think, Randy, president of the Board of Trustees for, for Crick, right? Um, so, uh, you know, you've been on the program uh, a few times. Remind listeners, you're a folklorist. That's right. I'm a folklorist that lived in a library for over 26 years. I was the Fife Folklore Archives curator and the oral history specialist. So you were so gracious over the years to invite me and some of my colleagues to come in and talk about some of our fieldwork projects. Now, how did you get connected with Crick? Well, Nelda, through the work that she was doing when she returned here to Cache Valley, um, obviously she's a folklorist, I'm a folklorist. There's a small world of folklore, and we all know each other and work together and share each other's work. And um, also there was a small project happening through um, the Department of Workforce Services that happened in the early, um, about 2012-13, that Utah State was um, awarded a contract to interview and kind of get the pulse of refugee community members in Utah and how their services um, throughout the state in a variety of ways could um, better serve the new American community members. And Nelda and I were part of that team. It was um, headed up by Steve Daniels and Lorian Belton out of um, the Department of Sociology here at USU. And so at that time, she and I and um, a variety of other people, including our former board president, Jess Lacero, we worked on that project together. And kind of at that same time, Crick was actually moving forward to um, become a 501c3. But at the same time, I was working on a fieldwork project with my graduate students and my colleague, Lisa Gabbert, out of the English department, the folklore program. We were um, working to conduct a Library of Congress USU fieldwork project on um, refugees in Cache Valley. And so similar to some of the things that Nelda just talked about in Cache Valley, we also had refugees during that time that um, were coming from what what um, we now know as Myanmar, but um, the community members here um, c- coming out of Burma, and some of them were Hubohinga or um, Burmese Muslims, and others were the Quran or Karani, and um, also we have and still do um, strong um, Karani community here, and also um, an emerging at that time, but now very strong Eritrean, Ethiopian community. And so my graduate students and I worked with our colleagues from the Library of Congress to, to interview them and to tell their story and have that in USU Special Collections. So that's sort of where I came into the story, is starting to collect the stories with always the um, mind that I would hope to be more involved with Crick, and that happened in um, 2016, a year after Crick was founded. Yeah. Let me turn to Danny Buse. Um, I'm reading your biography here. Um, you're the, the son of an immigrant mother. That's uh, maybe got you interested in some of these things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my mom was born in Chile and immigrated to the United States in the early 80s. Um, and so I grew up in Sacramento, California, kind of inner city Sacramento, and uh, have been surrounded by immigrants and refugees my entire life. Uh, so they've played such a, a big role in my life. Um, that I've made career decisions to be able to to give back to the community that gave me so much. Now, the, the I think, fairly new executive director of Crick, right? Yeah, it's been about six months now, I think. Yeah. How are things so far? Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it is busy. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of work to do. 
um, and we change people's lives. And, and so, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure there. Uh, I tell people all the time, like my, my biggest goal is not to mess things up. Um, the, the board has done an amazing job over the years to be able to bring these services to refugees and immigrants in Cache Valley. Uh, and so I just hope to be able to continue that work um, and expand it a little. Yeah. Let me turn back to Neldal Dislin, the founder of, of Cricks. Tell me about founding Crick. What was the what was the situation? What was the need that you saw, and, and how did that happen? Um, yeah, well, one of the first things that I have to say is that it wasn't just me. <laughs> there were a lot <laughs> of people um, who were just in the right place at the right time. Um, so I, um, after returning to to Logan after graduate school, and wishing that I could work again with refugee um, communities because I hadn't known that in the time I'd been gone to school um, that many of the people from Burma, the um, Karen and, and Muslim um, communities that Randy mentioned, they had they had moved here. Um, and so when I learned that, I was like, oh, too bad. I've already committed to this other job. Um, but over uh, after a couple of years, um, I was able to um, I, I got a position with the Department of Workforce Services here in Logan, um, and I was uh, assigned to just do home visits and, and work alongside community members who um, had only been in the Valley for a couple of years and still learning learning the ropes. Um, the English Language Center of Cache Valley was was um, kind of carrying the whole the whole work of, of resettling people here in Logan. Um, and so when I came in, I was able to... Um, uh, get to know a lot of the community members um, on a on a one on one basis, um, and then after a year and a half, that position's funding um, was was pulled from Logan, um, and so at that point, we we knew it was coming. It was you know about six months out. We said, okay, well, what's the next step if if I can't keep working this job? And um, the you know kind of the community people around me who represented school districts and local churches and um, other service providers like um, Head Start and. Um, these other other organizations who were very um, very vested in the the success of these community members, um, we decided to keep on meeting as a council, and then it took us a little while because you know everyone there was working a full full time job um, elsewhere, and so it took us a couple of years to make the decision to to take that plunge and become a nonprofit. Um, but when we did, we kind of just never looked back and and had such great people who were able to look over things like our paperwork and our you know, we, we had an AmeriCorps VISTA member named Michael Pekarski who sat down and drafted our bylaws, and we ran them past Nathan Holt, who's a local retired lawyer who looked over everything. And, and so it's just like, you know, person after person just came forward um, to help us get where we are today, where we can have an executive director, and we have a you know, healthy board of trustees. And it's, I, it, it took, you know, the course of probably 10 years of me, you know, first meeting a family um, in their apartment at the Riverwalk Apartments to where we are today. But but we got here. Tell me about that first meeting. Yeah, I was, um, so I was kind of paired with um, a local interpreter. So he was um, a refugee member from, from Burma. He had um, been in the refugee camps in Thailand as a, uh, you know, he I think he'd been, as a young child, he had arrived in Thailand with his family. Um, grew up, he spoke Karen, uh, Burmese, uh, probably Thai. Um, he also spoke that. And um, he just met me one day. Like I drove up to the apartment complex, and he he met me, and was like, "Hey, we're gonna go meet this family." And so we walked in, and uh, a Burmese-speaking family. Uh, they had a grandmother. They had um, all the. There were probably four adult sons who each had their own families. They all lived in the same apartment complex as well, and they all kind of came over when like, "Hey, we've got a visitor." <laughs> and we came over, and I. Um, 
remember, and then there were a couple of kids who weren't old old enough for school yet who were also there. And um, and I think we all just kind of settled in, and the interpreter uh, introduced me. And then we were like, and eh, now what? <laughs> um, but um, but very soon uh, after that first meeting, it was it was easy for people to realize that okay, Nelda's here to to give a hand. And so when I would walk in through the door, often what I'd get presented is a like a Walmart sack full of mail. And we're like, hey, can you help us figure this out? And so we'd go through and sort out the the junk mail and the bills and the important stuff because um, not only this community but many other communities, especially our friends from Sudan and and Somalia, like important things don't come in the mail to your house. Um, you have to go to a government building or something. And so that that just habit that um, of watching for important things in the mail was not something that they were they were used to. So. Um, so that, those were the early days. It was a lot of looking at mail. Uh, we still do a little bit today, but um, there's, uh, there was a lot of mail in those early times. <laughs> I'd like to maybe go around the panel, starting with uh, with you, Nelda, um, and have you talk a little bit about the experience of being a refugee. Thankfully, we haven't had that experience, right? And uh, not, don't have that upheaval uh, in, in our country, but uh, that's got to be such a traumatic experience uh, for you know, to, to, to leave your country, um, you know, something bad is probably going to happening there, right? And uh, so you're uprooted, probably a dangerous journey involved in some cases. Uh, you end up in this strange place. Uh, so now maybe to start with you. Yeah, I, well, I think there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of stories that are not, not mine to tell, but um, I, what I c- can talk about is not only is there, you know, a an uprooting, like you said, and uh, maybe a dangerous journey to get to a place of safety. But that applicate, like, so once you are in that safe place and you decide to apply to become a refugee, that is, I would say, almost more harrowing in some cases, um, where the this these levels of bureaucracy and the waiting and waiting. Um, and there's really, like, service providers like us have no idea how long that process will be. Um, and the people themselves um, who have applied have no long idea how long that process will be. There are so many steps. Um, we, we've often heard in the news about, you know, the vetting process and, and those kinds of things that, that, you know, kind of pop up every, every once in a while in the news. And, um, but that is a years-long process. Um, there are people who, who wait for maybe you know, for, for decades um, to get approval to even come to the U.S. And then once you're here, um, the, uh, many people rely on the surrounding community of, of you know, fellow folks from where they're from. Um, when people move to Logan, um, especially, uh, well, when any community moves to Logan, there's not as many um, fellow community members up here. And that's where Crick has tried to step in to provide some of the connection um, to services and things that we know about that just someone who... Um, has just arrived in Logan, can't, doesn't know about. Randy Williams, uh, tell me about, you know, understanding, getting to know some refugees. Um, what did they tell you about the the experience? Yeah, you know, I alluded to the fact that in 2015 we did the Oral History Project, and I really appreciate something Nelda just said. You know, a lot of times these aren't her stories to tell, but they're important stories that need to be heard. And as a folklorist, one of the best ways to do that is ask somebody, in a ethical and an informed way so that people get a chance to decide if they want to tell their story. And so people can 
listening can go to Utah State University's um, Special Collections and Archives and look at a digital collection of these stories. There's about 15 stories um, in the USU Refugee Voices um, project. And one of those stories is of a, a gentleman who um, has passed away. His name is Tun Le. He was an elder, a, um, a family man that um, came from um, Myanmar, Burma, into a Thai refugee camp with his family. And his story is really compelling, and all of the stories are compelling. And as you were asking, and as Nelda was saying, um, when you're displaced because of war, famine, because of um, unjust leadership, because of, um, of you know, um, drought, a variety of reasons why people are displaced, um, the UN High Commission for Refugees stated back in... Um, 2017, that the numbers of displaced persons was 65.5 million. Today, it's more close to about 84 million people who are displaced. And those people that displaced have these unique stories. But one of the common denominators are um, working with communities. And as Nelda talked about, you know, somebody in another place might get important information, word of mouth. And when somebody comes to a new environment, it kind of behooves us that has that ability to connect people um, to help out. And I often say to other people asking about this work, if any of us were dropped into the Malay refugee camp in Thailand, we would need to learn how do you get food there. It's going to be a very different system than I use, which is go down to Lee's Marketplace and get my food. Mm. And I would want to have a connector, a trusted friend. And what Nelda maybe won't say is that Nelda became, for a variety of years, that trusted friend in this community. And for a lot of years in our community, the calling card for anybody at Crick wasn't to say, I'm from Crick. It was to say, I'm with Nelda. Hmm. Because she had brokered that trust because of her kindness and humility and friendshiping. And that's really the basic the basic tenets of Crick, what it's all about. And as our past board member, Eduardo Ortiz, always said, it's a two-way street. We're not giving, giving, giving. We're getting, getting, getting. And that's the foundation of Crick. It's a two-way um, educational process. We need to learn as well. And through that learning, Crick has evolved and changed some of our practices to be more culturally relevant, humble, and, and able to, to learn ourselves to grow. And so Toon Lay was a great teacher to us. And I'm really excited to say that his daughter is now on our board, Lei mm. Wynn, and that is really um, the growth of Crick, to represent the communities in very culturally sensitive and appropriate ways. And our board is 50% made up of refugee and immigrant um, community members who help actually lead and direct Crick. Let me t- thank you for that. Uh, let me turn to uh, Danny Buse. Um, uh, same question that that it, you know, people you've talked to, maybe maybe starting with your mother. What th- that experience? Um, maybe not as traumatic as some refugee experiences, but uh, that's an uprooting, right? An immigration story. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I remember uh, the day that I decided I wanted to help immigrants, um, like my mom, and it was. We were, we didn't live, I didn't grow up in the best neighborhood. Uh, and so my parents had the opportunity to move um, and they were looking at homes. My dad's from the United States and um, he called on the house. Well, my mom called on a house first. 
there was a house that that she liked um, and so she called on it and she was told that it wasn't available to be shown anymore um, my dad hadn't talked with my mom you know you know we didn't have cell phones or anything and couldn't text her um, but he called uh, later in that in the same day and was able to set up an appointment uh, to see that home and I remember even as a, a 10 year old kid um, how that made my mom feel uh, and uh, we, we see that with our with our refugees and immigrants here in Cache Valley still um, but I, I remember thinking that that's what I want to do is make people not feel the way my mom did that day hmm yeah, that's that's powerful, and and ten is old enough, right? To yeah, yeah, to, it was it to, was to pick that up, right? Yeah, yeah, I didn't I didn't know much as a ten year old, um, yeah. but I did. I was able to to understand uh, that something wasn't right, and um, and my mom was hurt by it. Yeah. Well, we'll continue this uh, discussion after a break. We're uh, talking with uh, members of uh, Cash Refugee and Immigrant Connection, or CRIC. It's an organization in northern Utah devoted to helping refugees and immigrants. And we're talking with Nelda Alt-Dislin, who's founder of CRIC, Randy Williams, president of the Board of Trustees, and Danny Buse, the new executive director of uh, CRIC. So let me preface this. We're going to transition to, um, the, you know, the, the reason that we're here today, at least one of the reasons, which is raising money for UPR. Um, so before we transition to that, let me uh, make sure that I mention you can give to Crick, of course, right? Uh, let, let's let's take care of that first. Exactly. Um, so, so we always take money. Yes. Uh, so how best to do that? Cash refugees. Cash refugees. dot org. Cash refugees. You can uh, you can look that. I'm sure you can volunteer as well. Yes, and we have a volunteer button, and you can fill out your your um, information there. But I want to say just where you're going is we couldn't exist without our partners and one of our great partners is UPR we have long partnered with you and so we hope people will um, continue to support your efforts because the community Utah wide needs UPR yeah so Randy Williams you're a member of uh, UPR what uh, tell us about that what do you remember the first time oh my goodness you, you you became a member I have long been a member and I remember exactly one of my great friends Hillary Groudage Harrison Groudage's daughter the great painter from this area I moved to Cache Valley in 1993 to go to Utah State, and I was over at Hillary's apartment in the triads where, you know, where everybody starts out in, at Utah State if they're a married couple. And I remember she had UPR on the radio. Mm. I had never even been introduced or understood anything about um, National Public Radio. And I feel like I just stood in her apartment listening to this storytelling news broadcast, and I was transfixed. We talk about the driveway moments. Well, I had a, an, a, my friend's apartment moment where she probably was like, what's up with her? I literally remember my life being changed, and I have been um, you know, it, it, with UPR and NPR ever since that moment, which is now what, I mean, almost 40 years ago. Mm. And um, so you discovered NPR there and UPR. Um, w w there's a critical step to, you know, yes. a lot of people listen, but not exactly. everybody gives. What uh, yeah. Tell us about that. And it took a few years before I realized, why are you not paying your 
your dues, Randy. And I started, you know, then becoming a contributing member. And then when I actually started working at Utah State, it was so easy because all I had to do was have it taken out of my check every month. How simple and easy is that? And then one of my closest best friends worked at UPR for years and years. And um, she recently gave me a, and this is Nora Zambrino I'm talking about. She recently gave me a packet that she found that was little love notes that my family and I wrote to her for every day during the pledge drive. (laughs) So our family, when it was pledge drive time, it was auntie. It was auntie time, and we had to do something for auntie because it's a long period of time for you all who are here. And and so our connection, my family's connection to UPR is both news, but it's also family. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Uh, Nelda Aldislin, what what would you say to fellow listeners? Why why should we give to UPR? I have always appreciated the way that UPR um, just can elevate stories. You know, we I I've been talking about refugees here in the valley for for a long while, um, but it's you know I only have so, my my sphere is only so big, um, and so it's um, partners um, like Randy mentioned um, that that have this bigger reach, um, and it's you know and some people may be like, well, it's not important that that anyone outside of, you know, this area knows about what you're doing. Like, you know, what can they do from outside there? But I feel like this is important work that's going on in a lot of places around the world. And the more that someone knows about it, even if they don't live here in Logan, is, you know, it's beneficial in some way to the, to the entire world. Yeah. Uh, Danny Buse, what, uh, what would you say to, to listeners uh, about this community service? Well, I, I enjoy UPR. I enjoy NPR and UPR. Um, this brings another memory um, as a kid, but I remember sitting in the car with my dad, at very young, and he would always listen to car talk on, on NPR. Um, and so click and clack were like part of my family. Uh, and uh, so we've been long li- uh, listeners and supporters for a long time, and I, I just really enjoy um, the the services uh, that NPR and UPR uh, bring uh, to our community. Also, um, in an age of misinformation, it's nice to have um, some fair reporting, uh, and uh, I'm grateful for UPR for that service. Well, uh, won't you join your support with uh, Randy's and uh, Nelda's and uh, Danny's? Um, and here's how to do that. You can go to our website, upr.org, upr.org. I'll say it again, upr.org. Click on the uh, pledge form there. You can, uh, uh, just a couple of minutes uh, is what it takes. It'll ask you some basic information, how much you'd like to pledge, and how you'd like to take care of that, and any thank you gifts. And you have those all listed there, upr.org. Or morning time, I always have to explain this because the program is repeated in the evening. Uh, Nobody here to take your call in the evening. But if uh, if you're looking at the clock and it's in the 9 o'clock a.m. hour, then it's 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. That's 800-826-1495. You can also pledge uh, through our UPR app, Utah Public Radio app. And uh, it is very important. We rely on you. As we mentioned, not everyone who listens actually becomes a member. But if enough of us do, then we can, uh, we can continue this great programming. And uh, your support is so uh, valuable, so appreciated. And I'm thanking you in advance. UPR.org or 800-826-1495. We'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from listeners like you. And the Escalante Canyons Art Festival, now through September 26th, including plain air competition and exhibits, workshops, and live music. Details at Escalante Canyons Art Festival. 
www.ncbs.org. This is Science by the Slice. How Animals Avoid Predators reveals a clever array of defense mechanisms, including being armed with venom. USU herpetologist Al Savitsky studies Southeast Asian snakes known as keelbacks that store toxins in their skin. The snakes can't produce the toxin themselves, but obtain it from toads, their favorite prey. But in an evolutionary twist, some keelback species switch their diet to earthworms, which don't have the toxin. The scientists found these species to also eat firefly larvae, not for calories, but to obtain the defensive toxin. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's a special member drive edition of the program, and we're spotlighting Cash Refugee and Immigrant Connection, or CRIC, an organization in northern Utah devoted to helping refugees and immigrants. And we're talking with Nelda Alt-Dislin, founder of CRIC, Randy Williams, president of the Board of Trustees, and Danny Buse, uh, the new executive director of the uh, organization. And uh, we're looking for your support for uh, public radio. Uh, here quickly, the beginning of this segment, let me give you the uh, contact points, upr.org, upr.org. And if it's the morning, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Really appreciate your support here. Um, so let me start again with uh, Nelda Altislin. Um I'm imagining uh, if you work with refugees, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, we all pay, pay special attention, but... You know, for example, the situation in Afghanistan now, just a, another wave of refugees, I'm sure, will come from this. And a few years ago, the, the, the crisis in, in Burma, I'm, I'm sure some of, the, some of the folks here in Cache Valley were maybe had relatives affected there the, among the Rohingya population. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about that, Nelda. Um, yeah, well, and, and in addition, I, I feel like every country um, in every area of the world that's that we hear about in the news right now, we have people from there because the conflicts are not new, right? Um, and so, because I, I would add to that list the um, civil war in Ethiopia right now. Um, and so the, yeah, these, um, of course, you know, no one, even though you've arrived in a place of safety and you're kind of starting, we, we see it as like starting your life over. Um, you're not gonna forget where you came from or or maybe family who's still left behind. Um, like I mentioned that that whole resettlement process is not, not everyone gets through it. Um, not everyone has access. Not everyone makes like the quota that the U.S. or other resettling countries um, set for. And so, um, yeah, so the, I know that we've had um, community members. We have um, an Eritrean community of Utah that they've um, organized as a, as a, as a little nonprofit um, with the assistance of the Refugee Services Office in Salt Lake, who um, kind of helps these startups of these mutual help um, community-based groups. And, um, and the, this group um, during COVID last year was looking for just any kind of meeting place venue that was open um, so that they could gather their community together to talk about the war in Ethiopia and how, you know, kind of process what was going on. I don't remember if we actually found, helped them find a, a spot to meet because everywhere was closed at that point. Um, but yeah, it's a, you know, your home, home is always your home, um, you know, and, um, and maybe, um, we, we hear lots of you know, immigrant stories and stuff like that where you know, the, the homeland was 
is always such a presence. Um, and then as generations are kind of um, established in a new homeland, it, it kind of there's more and more distance. But but in this world of you know social media, where people can still be connected really immediately to their family members um, who you know have a cell phone across the world, um, it's it's a little bit different than in generations past, I think. Randy Williams, maybe talk a little bit about that as well. The preserving connections, you know, around the world. Uh, maybe with new technology, you can alleviate some worries a little more than you did in the past. I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to spend a little time in Greece to do some humanitarian work um, there. And one of the things I learned really quickly was WhatsApp is very important in the refugee um, and, and immigrant community, but especially during times of upheaval. Um, people are able to check in on family members depending on where they might be. And that technology has saved lives but also um, softened worry at times. Um, and so technology definitely has had a, a big part in that. Also, just getting news out about places. I think we all are more aware because of news outlets, but also because of um, Facebook and social media, um, a variety of, of ways people are able to get information out. And that does um, help us all understand what is happening around the world, but how it is, it's not about the other, it's about all of us um, and how people in our own community have family members. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting now for all of us, when there's a um, a devastation of some sort in anywhere, people will uh, mark themselves in social media safe and so that their family and friends can quickly know that. And I think any of us who has any other people that we worry about, which is all of us, that we can then move that feeling that is personal to us about our family and kin to recognize that's the same kind of feeling anyone, anywhere is going to have about their family and kin. And as Nelda alluded to, you know, we have a large Eritrean Ethiopian community. And so during, right now in the Tigray region, um, the fighting and unrest that's happening there affects our community members. And um, the same thing with the borders. And, um, you know, we hear off and on things happening in Myanmar. Um, that affects our community members. Wherever a person is, they are part where they're at now and part where they came from. And Danny so beautifully talks about that with his own mother and his own experiences. And that informs, and I love what you've talked about, you know, doing good. And how do we define good? Um, I know a lot of times people talk about doing no harm or leaving a place if you're going camping, you know, leave something better than you found it. And I feel like one of the simplest things that a person can do here to support new Americans is be welcoming. Mm. That's the very simplest thing, you know, to teach your children to be welcoming, to, if you're a landlord, to be welcoming and think outside what you've normally done to be willing to accept something maybe that's a little bit new or different from what you've experienced. And um, we know that, that there are quotas and there's less than 1% of all people who are displaced. And I just said there's 84 million displaced persons. Less than 1% get resettled. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Uh, distressing, right? Yeah. In the meantime, so so many uh, refugees are in camps, right? Yes, they and, are. And living their lives, kids growing up in camps, right? It's actually, that's the truth, um, Tom. Many people will... Be, be forcibly or choose to leave their country of origin based on a variety of horrors, and they will live their whole life, raise their children in a refugee camp. And those camps are godsends in lots of ways, but they're also 
um, rife with a lot of violence, especially against women. And of that 84 million people, 50% are women and children. Mm. Uh, Danny Buse, I want to maybe have you pick up something that Randy said. Um, uh, talk about being welcoming. What can we do, you know, to, to maybe um, have fewer incidents like the one that happened to your mom, right, that, that, that you witnessed at 10 years old, where the landlord said, it's, you know, nothing available anymore. Uh, how, how, can we, how can we do that? How can we get more people to be more welcoming? So I think uh, it's important for people to educate themselves on these issues. You know, if you have questions, um, to, to look at reputable sources online or in, um, in print to be able to learn more about what's happening in um, a lot of these countries, what happens to refugees, the vetting they go through, uh, the years and years and years of living in refugee camps. Um, there's so much we can learn. Uh, and then when we're having interactions with um, people of other cultures, uh, just being respectful and understanding that, like, our culture is, you know, isn't the only culture. Um, and I think that's hard for some people to understand sometimes. Uh, and so just being respectful to other people um, and uh, being open, um, that, that's probably the question I get most is, how can I help? Um, and, and so the very first way uh, is just learning about um, people who are displaced and, and, and how they can help um, and how they can open their, their arms and, uh, to these people. Uh, Randy Williams, you, you uh, said something, I think the phrase was culturally humble. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe expand on that. What, uh, the, 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 over time, the organization learned to be culturally humble. Yeah, thanks, Tom, for asking. I think a lot of us, um, I know as folklorists, we are uh, learning and growing. Uh, Folks who are working with um, new Americans, um, recognizing, as Danny said, there's many cultures, there's many worldviews, and learning to be humble, to be able to to be taught. And for me, that started... um, when I was in sixth grade, so very similar to Danny, recognizing that I didn't know all the things. And I had an incident um, when I was in sixth grade. I, um, Las Vegas had um, some segregation, and um, a lot of busing happened for the African-American students to be bused from second grade on out of their communities about a 45-minute drive one way every day. And um, when I came on the scenes in 1974, they determined that maybe um, the sixth graders, maybe it was 72, the sixth graders would be bused from the reverse of that for one school year. And one day I remember sitting um, outside a homeroom classroom and we were waiting to go inside and some boys were doing the dozens, which I will briefly define at the time. I didn't know what it was, but now I do know. Um, it's a, a verbal art form of kind of dueling. And if you, the, a simple form of that might be your mama jokes. And the boys were doing that. And so being a kind of precocious sixth grader, I, I ventured one that I just made up on the spot, which was your mama's so um, low she'd have to use a um, Cheerio for a hula hoop. And um, I got an apple core thrown at me. Mm-hmm. And we both went to the, the um, principal's office. It wasn't years later until I was in a folklore class as a graduate student with Barry Token that I learned about the dozens. And I realized that I had culturally appropriated somebody's... Um, of verbal arts, and I didn't understand at the time why that boy was so mad at me. I kind of thought he was in the wrong, and I readjusted my thinking at that moment as an adult woman. And I realized as I moved through my graduate program, but just as in life, I realized that we all come with 
information that we're given, almost like a backpack of information. And everybody has that backpack. And it might be different tools in that backpack, but everybody has that backpack of culture. And to be culturally um, humble is to recognize, A, that everyone else has a backpack, and B, what's inside it is valuable and helps people get through life. And to disregard it and ask somebody when they come and relocate to the United States to take off their backpack and pick up our backpack, it's just not possible. Um, we might acquire things that we put in our backpack from someplace. Because when I travel, I love to pick up things and put new things in my backpack. But I think being culturally humble is recognizing that we are all functioning full adults and um, children and that we can learn and grow and be accepting. Um, Neldal Dislin, I want to ask you this. Um there's so many needs out there, right? You 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 saw a need in the refugee community and and acted. Um, maybe talk about that. You know, just because if you if you let yourself feel and look at all the needs, uh, you know, maybe you get paralyzed. You you throw up your hands, right? Um, I guess you just got to pick an area and and uh, and jump in. Is that that what you do? Yeah, that really is actually. Um uh, and so I guess I was talking about like your, your sphere of influence, um, and that's that's where that's where I was. Where um, I think that um, in this work that we do, and in this work that I promote among college students um, in my job, um, is is looking at communities in an asset-based way instead of a deficit-based way. Um, I think that's something that that Crick is is always learning how to do, um, but I think um, has has got a lot of um, good history on looking at um, and, and approaching community members um, from. <clears throat> With refugee and immigrant backgrounds, that um, that we we don't look at you as if you're like a kindergartner who doesn't know anything. It's you are a functioning adult. You have these other skills that I don't have. Um, one of the places that that comes out is at our community garden, um, where I you know I grew up kind of gardening. My family gardened a little bit, and we were surrounded by gardeners. Um, and when we started up this community garden, um, just in kind of central Logan, um, the f- that very, you know, probably the second year, people were constructing these trellises that they still do today. If you go down there right now, you could go see these trellises where they grow these gigantic gourds that are, um, you know, supported off of these trellises of like, how did, wait, how did you build that? And how did you do that so fast? Um, and here my, my students are out there like YouTubing how to put a tomato cage, like a weaving tomato cage up. And, and these other folks are just like, and here's a trellis. Um, and so I think that, um, and maybe that would take care of some of the overwhelm, where if, if you find yourself um, with an opportunity to, to maybe connect someone to something that you know and that they don't, um, or uh, just an opportunity to befriend someone who's different than you or your family, um, approach them as like, well, what do you, what do you know? Like, what, what can you share? What can we share together? Um, and I think that, that if, if you approach it as if I need to save all these folks, then that's um, not going to help them and it's not going to help you. Uh, but if you approach it with like, let's, let's sit down together and, um, and, and figure this out together. Uh, so many of those, those early days were me sitting on the floor um, next to someone who's like little toddlers are running around the room and we were figuring stuff out. And, um, and so I think that's, that's the approach that worked for me. Um, I think that that's the approach is working for Crick. Um, and and hopefully that we can keep on keep on doing that in these um, other future plans that we have. Well, let's take another break. Um, we're talking with uh, members of CRIC, uh, Cash Refugee and Immigrant Connection, on the special member drive edition of Access Utah. 
And you just heard uh, there from Nelda Alt-Distland, founder of Crick. We're talking also with Randy Williams, president of the Board of Trustees, and Danny uh, Buse, executive director. Uh, so uh, before we go to break again, uh, let me let me enlist your uh, help again with uh, with our uh, member drive here at Utah Public Radio. Again, uh, with the preface that uh, you can definitely help uh, Crick by going to cashrefugees.org, cashrefugees.org. So Nelda Aldislin, uh, again, what, uh, what why should why should people support their public radio station? Yeah, I think that um, supporting a, your public radio is, um, so Danny mentioned going to reputable sources uh, for information. Um, I think that that's one of the things that people can rely on. Um, and um, the way that that can inform your, your decisions and, and the things that you do decide to, to take into your life, you've, you've got to base that off of something. And I think that um, you can rely on, on UPR and the, the many voices. So, you know, I, I talked about elevating stories, and it's not just they're not just going to elevate one story. Um, they're going to bring in as many as they can, and that's that's something you can trust. Randy Williams, what um, what you know? What, I, I think we generally know. Yeah, we probably should. <laughs> you know, if you're listening, probably should become a member, renew our membership. Uh, what's your encouragement to, to fellow you know, listeners? I love. I like the pledge drive because during the pledge drive, we hear from people from um, National Public Radio. We also hear locally folks like us today talking. And for me, I realized how much news I actually got at the time and continue to get from UPR and National Public Radio. And I recognized at some point it wasn't free, that actually it was dependent and set up 50 years ago on a model that was different from every other news source in the country, that it was going to be uh, payer-supported. And at one point I realized, oh, that means me. I am, I am the, uh, gaining something tangible and valuable to my own life that helps me make informed decisions. I need to, therefore, support that. I would never think of going into a store and taking some service to myself without a payment. And UPR supports me in my life, helps me make decisions, informs me, and I put a value, a dollar value on that. And I have been a contributing member for many, many years because of that. I value UPR, and I want to support the initiatives. Um, I, in another world, am part of the um, Rural and Tribal Opioid Initiative, and UPR has been partnering with us to tell incredible stories um, about the opioid epidemic that takes some funding. And helping to get that story out is important to me, to people throughout our state. And that takes funding, and that funding comes from us. So I hope that you will all today listening support UPR because they're telling the stories from the excluded, the underserved, the very much served, that we're hearing the big stories and the small stories. Uh, Danny Buse, so what, what's your uh, appeal to fellow listeners? Yeah, so uh, obviously I'm a member of the Latino community, and there's a strong Latino community here in, in Cache Valley, especially in Logan. Um, and what UPR is doing is UPR Tres is a, a new service that provides, um, you know, access and music and news in Spanish to our uh, Spanish listening um, members of the community. And so I think this is a really cool project that UPR is working on. Uh, and I think people should donate so that we can support more projects like this uh, to be able to reach more people. So I'm, I'm extremely, extremely excited to see how that's going to work out uh, with UPR in the future.
Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Uh, that's You can go to upr.org and uh, and click on that. You have UPR Live, the main channel. UPR 2 is classical music. UPR 3 is Spanish language programming. Um, let me just give the, the numbers, and uh, then we won't go to break quite yet. We'll just uh, we'll just uh, end the program here soon. But uh, uh, so, so we should tell people how we can support UPR. We've, we've had the beautiful uh, appeals here. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. Again, uh, look at the clock if it's in the 9 o'clock a.m. hour. Uh, we have to do this time shifting because we repeat the program in the evening. Uh, 800-826-1495 is the place to to uh, reach us. Just a couple minutes out of your day. Or upr.org, upr.org. That's upr.org. Um, very simple process, fast process. Whatever you can um, uh, pledge is, is, is wonderful. You are the single most important source of funding for UPR, and uh, we rely heavily on you, and uh, I'm thanking you in advance for your pledge right now. UPR.org, UPR.org, or 800-826-1495. We we have to go here uh, pretty soon, but I I just wanted to, before we uh, left, just briefly go around the, the panel. It occurs to me we've we've think we're thinking about and we've been talking about, especially during the pandemic, the, this idea of resilience. And maybe starting with Neldal Dislin and going around again, we'll have to be brief here. I'm sure we can learn lessons. Uh, the, the, the very definition of resilience <laughs> uh, it can be found with refugees. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I, I think the best um, experience I've ever had, um, kind of going back to the, our garden and how um, many people have found a way to feel like they belong here, that they're at home um, through gardening. Um, because it's something that they did when they were, you know, in their own homes, in their own homeland. And so um, I think that what I've seen over the years is people have just grown their own food and connected to me in a way that I, I knew about. I, I know about growing your own food. I think that that's where I learn what it's like to bring something from your home and, and try it again. Um, and I think that's that's resilience to me is like figuring out what you knew before and try it again. Um, so that's yeah, yeah, that's what I love about resilience and the refugee community. What would you say, Randy Williams, about this? I agree 100% with Neldon. I think um, situating ourselves in a very personal way with resilience. And the last few months, Crick has started something called a Women's Story Circle. And that was the brainchild of board member um, Terhas Teferi. And um, we meet monthly with women from the Eritrean Ethiopian community and the Somali community and the Karenia community. And the idea of resilience is worldwide. Everybody every day has to negotiate a variety of things and we have to survive. And recognizing that we actually have so much in common with each other. There's, there's a lot that we don't for sure. But we definitely have so much in common as we meet as women and we always have some food and we talk about what's happening in each of our lives. I recognize that one of the ways we can be be more resilient is together, community building, whether that's in the garden, gardening together, whether it's um, women in a story circle, whether that is through volunteering at Crick and meeting new people and becoming part of our um, neighbor program where families are matched together. It's this sense of community. I think that helps us be resilient. Mm. And uh, Danny Buse, uh, briefly, what, uh, you know, uh, refugees, immigrants, very definition of resilient. Absolutely. Uh, and I try to teach my kids every day, you, you never give up on something. 
Uh, and refugees and immigrants are the perfect example of that. They just never give up. No matter what comes in front of them, no, ma no matter what challenges are presented, uh, they keep moving forward. Uh, and I, I hope I can teach that to my own children uh, and use you know, refugees and immigrants as an example of this. Well, uh, again, here at the end, um, just I'll mention the contact points here. Uh, first, uh, to help uh, CRIC, Cash Refugee and Immigrant Connection, uh, you can go to their website, cashrefugees.org, cashrefugees.org. And to support your local public radio station, here's how you do it. Uh, you can pick up a great thank you gift if you're at the particular level, but the important fact is that you go online or, or call us and take care of that. While you're thinking about it right now, I encourage you to take care of that, and you'll feel good about your listening. UPR.org, UPR.org, or you can call 800-826-1495 in the morning, 800-826-1495, and uh, thank you so much. Uh, so we thank um, Neldahl Dislin, founder of uh, Crick. Uh, thanks for coming in. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having us here. Appreciate it. Uh, Randy Williams, who's uh, president of the Board of Trustees at Crick, thank you for coming in. Thank you, Tom. We appreciate your continued support here at UPR for new Americans in our state. Thank you. And Danny Buse, who's executive director of Crick, thank you for coming in. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having us, and thank your listeners. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And we're uh, going to go next to our Wednesday feature, Beehive Archive. <music> It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Public health is a common good that communities have long rallied around. In the early 20th century, the highly infectious typhoid disease brought health experts and Utah citizens together to demand clean water and upgraded public water systems. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Shortly after Christmas in 1916, the Rollins family of Cornish, Utah, lost their 12-year-old daughter, Margaret, to typhoid fever. Her unexpected death came just weeks after her younger brother succumbed to the same illness. The Rollins story was tragic, but sadly not unique. In the early 1900s, typhoid fever circulated through Utah communities, with 2,028 cases of the disease reported in the first 15 years of the century. By this time, it was widely understood that the infectious typhoid bacteria spread through contaminated water, if only city officials would upgrade their public water systems. Typhoid is easily passed along when an infected person handles food without properly washing their hands, or cleans food storage containers with contaminated water. A symptomless carrier can infect an unsuspecting victim, causing fever and often death. Newspapers at the time printed practical tips on avoiding infection, such as boiling water before use, and attempted to dispel misinformation about germs and bacteria. As an entirely preventable disease, public health experts encouraged individual responsibility, but also promoted improvements to city water infrastructure throughout the state. Pools of stagnant water, poor sewage treatment, and the proximity of animals to water sources all created the perfect environment for typhoid bacteria to thrive. As cities and towns grew, so did the risk for contamination and the threat of disease. For many Utahns who previously had access to clean, fresh water, 
typhoid was a scary side effect of urban development and growth. Public demand for water purification systems intensified, and pressure mounted on cities to invest in facilities that would provide residents with reliably clean drinking water. Utah voters demanded more regulation and control over public health and community infrastructure. In response, cities began to distribute funds to better develop water systems, including improved sewer systems. They also passed stricter laws regarding food handling. By 1915, Salt Lake City instituted water and sewer purification programs, using chlorine to eradicate the bacteria from drinking water, which dramatically decreased typhoid cases. These efforts, in combination with a successful vaccination campaign, all but eradicated this nasty disease in Utah. Find sources in past episodes at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.